You're listening to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center, Legal Fuel, produced by the broadcast professionals of the Florida Bar. the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by Legal Fuel, the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. We're so glad you're joining us. This is Christine Bilbrey. I'm a Senior Practice Management Advisor at the Bar and one of the hosts of the show, which is being recorded from our home offices in Tallahassee, Florida. Hello, I'm Carla Eckhart. I'm a Practice Management Advisor at the Florida Bar and co-host of today's podcast. Our goal at the Practice Resource Center is to assist Florida attorneys with running the business side of their law practices. We focus on a different topic each month and carry the theme through our website with related tips, videos, and articles. So today we are discussing how attorneys can use emotional intelligence to increase their happiness and be more successful in their law practices. General intelligence is very important to people who are drawn to the practice of law. You have to be fairly bright to graduate from law school and then pass the bar. And many lawyers likely credit much of their success to their high IQs. But for years, studies have shown that the happiest and most successful people also possess a high EI, or sometimes called EQ number. Joining us now to explain what emotional intelligence is and how you can use it to improve your life is Rhonda Muir. Rhonda is the founder of Law People Management, which is one of the country's leading authorities on lawyer personalities and on integrating behavioral science into the legal workplace. Drawing from her experience practicing law in New York and Europe, Rhonda is able to offer real-world solutions to both the traditional and emerging people management challenges that are unique to the legal industry. She's a nationally recognized speaker, an award-winning author, and publishes lawpeopleblog.com. Her book, Beyond Smart, Lawyering with Emotional Intelligence, is an American Bar Association bestseller and is the first comprehensive guide to understanding, using, and raising emotional intelligence in the context of the practice of law. Welcome to the show, Rhonda. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So, Rhonda, can you talk a little bit about what drew you from the practice of law into the study of behavioral science and specifically emotional intelligence? All right. Um, I was a psychology undergrad and at Swarthmore College, and I was very interested in psychological principles and how that affects us. And that was at a time when psychology was in sort of what they call a medical diagnosis uh, frame of mind, where psychology looked at disease and dysfunction. Uh, I went on to start a master's at Harvard in psychology and was very frustrated. I actually, one of my first classes was in was in group dynamics because I thought that would be interesting from a jury standpoint. But I was not really happy with where psychology was at that point. So I, I left and, and went straight to law school. Um, and after through law school and then practicing law, that interest in psychology kept popping up. You know, who are these people practicing law? What kind of principles psychologically are motivating them? Um, so that's that's where my interest started. And then um, I was a, an assistant to the managing partner at a big firm. And I found that most of what I was doing was sort of an HR function, which is helping people perform, uh, dealing with relationships in the firm or with clients. 
And then when I went into consulting, um, emotional intelligence had been a concept that was very um, pervasive in the corporate world, but lawyers did not, were very wary of it and didn't really embrace it. So that's where my um, motivation came. I started out with an article in the ABA journal saying that, that emotional intelligence should be something that firms look at when making partners because of how important it is in growing and prospering the firm. So let's start with, let's take it back a little bit. We know it's important, but let's start with giving our listeners a basic overview of the definition of emotional intelligence. Let's, let's start with the, the foundation here. Yes, great. Because there's some confusion between sort of the pop media and then all the different articles that come out. So I think the simplest definition is the ability to make emotions work for you instead of against you. It's, it's a compound noun, emotional intelligence. It's a concept that marries your cognitive intelligence, which is in the prefrontal cortex, the front of your brain, where all your analytical uh, cognitive intelligence goes on, with the emotional data that's stored in your emotional brain, which is at the back of the brain, towards the brain stem, and it's called the amygdala. There you have all these unconscious experiences that or you may be unconscious of them, experiences you accumulated over your lifetime. We even find that there are experiences there that you had while you were in utero. There was a very interesting Israeli study about that. And also experiences that you may have inherited from prior generations, um, which is a really tantalizing concept. But mm-hmm. that part of your brain answers very quickly the it's a very fast moving part of your brain as opposed to the prefrontal cortex, which is sort of plotting and, and, and uh, slower. Um, Daniel Kahneman in thinking fast and slow was referring to these two parts of our brain, but the, the emotional part, the amygdala answers very quickly that old fight or flight. Do I stay? Do I go? Is this risky? Am I safe? And, Unfortunately, it's this part of the brain, that sort of felt experience. It's not, it's not verbal. It's not analytical. It's something you feel. That's a little harder for lawyers to get in touch with. So when studies have been conducted based on occupation, how did the lawyers who participated compare to the general population on IQ scores and also on emotional intelligence scores? Yeah, so um, that's that's sort of the telling part. Um, in the studies that have been done on IQ, lawyers are one or two standard deviations above average. That that means over a hundred, which is the nation's average IQ. Lawyers are one hundred and fifteen to one hundred and thirty, even in IQ a substantially higher IQ than the general public. But when you look at emotional intelligence, they are in the standard deviation below average emotional intelligence, which is again, a hundred. It's lower than doctors to whom we often compare ourselves. Um, So that's a pretty disturbing fact. Uh, The Zadig-Schultz study, I don't know if people are familiar with that, that was done in 2011. They came up with 26 factors that promote success as a lawyer. And they spent years talking to judges, clients, lawyers, 
But what they found that was that over half of those 26 factors were related to feelings, to social connections, to emotional intelligence. But they concluded that lawyers are unlikely to exhibit the strong emotional development that's necessary to practice law well. And part of the reason we suspect that might be true is that one of the original EI researchers, Salovey, who's now actually the president of Yale University, he did a lot of work um, on mood. And he found that people who were slightly depressed did much better on a test that he devised that include, included a lot of questions from the LSAT. So the interesting part there is that what that means is those people who are generally a little depressed tend to have lower emotional management skills. Um, and what that means is that we're maybe even controlling in our admissions for people who may have some lower emotional intelligence. And on top of that, the bad news is that the emotional intelligence that is, that is uh, studied during law school shows that, that those students tend to get, have lower emotional intelligence over the course of law school. And that's interesting because I think a lot of lawyers that you would talk to would pride themselves on saying, I'm very detached and unemotional. That's how I'm able to do my job very well. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly true. So one of the things, what I often hear from lawyers is, um, if I could just eliminate all my feelings, then I could really improve my performance as a lawyer. There's a a statement I love, uh, which is, if I wanted to talk about feelings, I wouldn't have gone to law school. And I'm sure that's true about a a lot of lawyers because they are very strong, you know, smart in the cognitive, the prefrontal cortex part of their brain. But um, that's actually what I'm talking about is how important it is to feel those feelings, both for their own performance and their safety and those around them, particularly in this time, in this very difficult environment. And I have a good anecdote. Um, There was a lawyer in the history of emotional intelligence, a sort of a landmark case, who didn't have any emotions, who was that possibly ideal lawyer who didn't feel anything. His name was Elliot. He was in his 40s. He was a corporate lawyer in upstate New York doing quite well. Um, He had had an orange-sized brain tumor removed. But the good news was a battery of tests of all his brain functions showed that there was absolutely no change at all in Elliot's intelligence. His language, his logic, his IQ, et cetera, all of that stayed the same. But in fairly short order, he lost his job, his wife left him, and he's had to start living in his brother's basement. So a very famous neuroscientist named Antonio Damasio, who ended up writing a book pretty much about Elliot, uh, started studying him. And what he found was that, true, there was no prefrontal cortex damage during this surgery. But what had happened is he had lost his connection to his amygdala. So he had no ability to connect to that rich source of historical information about his emotions and his current emotions. And what Damasio concluded after many, I won't go through all that, was that in order to make good decisions, you have to feel as well as think. Mm -hmm. 
Do you have to be able to draw from those experiences in your, in your emotional brain in order to know what's going to be successful, what's risky, what's safe? Um, it, the, one of the first indications that he got was when offering Elliot various appointments, Elliot could give you all the reasons for and against every appointment, but nothing felt right. He couldn't make a decision just on the simple matter of an appointment. Wow. That's, it's, it's fascinating because you don't, you don't think about your emotions, right? You, you, a lot of people just, you feel and that's it. But when you don't have that connection, I assume it's confusing because it's just not there. So we, we keep talking about these studies and, and how lawyers measure above average for IQ, lower than average for EQ. Um, how is an, an emotional intelligence score measured and, and what are the hierarchies or the different levels of emotional intelligence? Right. So that's important because then we can figure out what part of emotional intelligence lawyers are good at or not so good at. So there's essentially four four parts that I simplified the various, I mean, there's several, three prominent ones, a couple of extras, uh, several very prominent um, uh, respected emotional intelligence theories and then assessments associated with that. So I've sort of uh, reduced that down to four skills. And the first one is emotional perception. Uh, and it looks like a pyramid. So the, the base of the pyramid is being able to perceive emotions. That's your own and others. The next one is empathy. And the next one is up is um, understanding emotions. And the top one is managing emotions and emotional relationships. So how that works is at the bottom, if you see someone and you say, oh, that person is sad you can tell by looking at them or by their behavior and one of the reasons uh, you can do that is because you have empathy you can say i know how she feels you're tapping into your own emotional experience um, seeing how she is acting or looking and then if you understand those emotions the third level then you can maybe say well um, if i'm going to say to her that just because she got um, bad marks on this particular brief, let's say, I know she's very good at negotiation. So she shouldn't be down on herself. She should realize that there may be something she needs to work harder at, but also there's some good things she does really well. And then in the managing relationship part, you might say, okay, so I'm gonna explain, say that to her, or I'm going to encourage or remind her of how she good she is at at negotiation. The problem is that if on that bottom rung, the perception, if, if she's not sad, if in fact she's like furious, then all of your empathy and understanding and management skills have gone out the window. This is a sort of garbage in, garbage out problem. The most important aspect of emotional intelligence is can you perceive accurately the emotions in yourself and those around you and wouldn't you know it that's the of those four skills that's the one that lawyers are have a tremendous deficit in much worse the understanding and management they're pretty good at because th that draws on a lot of those analytical skills uh but the um 
emotional perception, seeing and understand, seeing and registering correctly what someone else or themselves are, are feeling is what we're not good at. And it's been established over and over again. So one builds on the other. So you really need the, the base of the pyramid to be able to successfully um, move up the move up the pyramid to put this into practice to where you are, you know, functioning at a higher EI level. Um, but one of the unlo- online quizzes that you reference in your presentations, and which I think is fascinating, I encourage our listeners, we're going to put a link up to it under this podcast on our website. Um, it, the title of the quiz is called Reading Emotions in the Eyes. I took it myself and I was hesitant because when I pulled it up, it's completely based on photographs of just people's eyes without the rest of their face for context. And it says that it's a test of social intelligence. So I started out, so there's like a four multiple choice. So you're trying to perceive what the person is feeling. Um, And when I looked at the words, it threw me off. So I started blocking the words and just going with my gut on what I thought their eyes were doing. And I wound up doing well, not bragging. That's the right way to take it. A lot of people (laughs) do that. That's exactly the right way to take it. But why is this test significant? And what is social intelligence? So this social intelligence is just a bigger, broader part of emotional intelligence. It takes in... It's, it's not that different from emotional intelligence because most theories about emotional intelligence include social relationships. So, but it's, it's, it's emphasizing reading other people's emotions as opposed to your own. Although the, the test we have say that if you're good at one, you're probably good at the other. Um, this test was developed back in, I think, 20, 2007, maybe. Uh, by Sasha Baron Baron Cohen's cousin. Yes, that's right. Wow, pop culture. <laughs> cousin Simon, who is a real person, who's a real psychology researcher at Cambridge University, and it's it's been used a lot. And it's obviously just a very small piece of uh, perce- perceiving emotions, because one of the things we know is that in communication, less than then 10% is verbal. So the rest mm-hmm. is nonverbal, body language, eyes, facial, tone, pace. And there's a lot of other things. But so this is one little piece of communicating. That's why it's important. It's also one piece of empathy. Like we talked, if, if you can relate to what you see, if you're empathic, if you can say, I know how that feels, then you're able to, to uh, reach into. So that it's important. It's critical for emotional intelligence, this tiny little piece. Um, but, it's, but it's also a bigger thing than just emotional intelligence. Uh, I always tell people, and you did, you did perfectly, I always tell people, that you feel a hundred times faster than you think, and you have a, a, an emotional reaction within a half a second. So it's very important that you react. You know, you can't download this and research it. You've got to react very quickly to how you feel. And what we're trying to do is bypass that prefrontal cortex and go directly to the amygdala and and say, oh yeah, this person is depressed, or this person is jubilant, or this and and like she said, there's there's very very different uh, words, and some of them are close. So it's so so it's a it's a good indication 
so that you know the average score is somewhere between 60 and 80 percent uh, accuracy and that can go all over the the board and you might find it was redone in 2011 you might find it interesting that there are only white faces there's not really any diversity mm-hmm. really yeah. uh, but they actually did those tests i and other people have brought that to their attention i'm sure i was not the only one and they have done additional tests and what they found interestingly is there's no significant difference in any given person's ability to read a different race so that's interesting. And the other thing is that they're used to show a small female advantage. And over time, uh, that seems to have basically disappeared. I feel like that quiz can almost be seen like you can see it play out in social situations. Like there are people that just can't read the room, you know, and and, and that's, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's kind of part of it, you know, reading emotion yeah. in the eyes. It's they're talking, they're in context, they're part of the conversation, but something just switches and then that's it it all takes part in how their face and how their action like face reacts Mm -hmm. so it's 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 fascinating that there's a quiz that's specific to that yes carla and um there's actually a part of the mesquite which is one of the major emotional intelligence assessments that relates exactly to that reading the room and of course for lawyers that's very important in negotiations juries that sort of thing So yes, this is a small piece of that. I love that you mentioned thinking fast and slow. I read that as part of a marketing course and it, it demonstrates which part of your brain is kicks in. So when I took the reading emotions in the eyes, if I looked at the words, um, I started analyzing the definitions. If I block the words, I had an immediate reaction, you know, the thinking fast to the photograph of the eyes. So I encourage people to take that test and, and you can kind of turn the different parts of your brain on and off. It was, it was very interesting. Exactly. That's, I, uh, you did it exactly right. I wanted to um, point out that there's a practical uh, application of this bill. It doesn't just make you more emotionally intelligent, but for example, uh, it's been this very specific ability to read emotions in the eye has been linked to how well we perform on complex problem-solving tasks, interestingly enough. And maybe more importantly for our, our lawyers is, is high-performing teams. So Google did a study over three years, and they were trying to find team composition that would result in less conflict, more productivity, more efficiency, more innovation, that sort of thing. It turned out that IQ had nothing to do with high team performance. What what mattered, interestingly enough, was that team members felt safe. Those are the words, safe. And what was key to putting together members who could produce that feeling was whether they could read how their other team members felt. So if, if they could read how they felt, people felt recognized, I guess, valued um, and, and responded to. So that's why something like this little ability is very important for our, our practice, our day-to-day practice. Yeah, I could see where if you're able to more clearly read the emotions that your client has had is having right when they've come in your office, you're going to connect with them and they're going to feel you use the word safe to share and you need that information from them. They need to feel comfortable that they can share this information with you as their advocate. So I, you know, that would be a, a huge advantage to be able to do that successfully. 
The other test that you recommended to us is called how emotionally intelligent are you? So Carla and I both took this one and I really like the explanation that it has at the beginning on the website under the heading of boosting your people skills. And I'm quoting from them. We all know people who are in full control of their emotions. They're calm in a crisis. They make decisions sensitively, however stressful the situation. We also know people who can read the emotions of others. They understand what to say to make people feel better, and they know how to inspire them to take action. People like this have high emotional intelligence, or EI. They have strong relationships. They manage difficult situations calmly and effectively. They're also likely to be resilient in the face of adversity. So the ringing endorsement of why this is so important. This, but this was all grouped as a description of a person with high emotional intelligence. But you, t- you touched on this earlier. Can a person be proficient in reading other people's emotions, but not great at having an awareness of their own or the reverse where they're just less attuned to the emotions of the people around them, but are very plugged into themselves? What, what does that look like? And is, or do those things typically correlate? They typically correlate. There have been examples of differences. So because they typically correlate, what I try to do in working with people, lawyers specifically on emotional intelligence, is feeling their own emotions, getting in touch with their own emotions. So there's a couple of different aspects to that. For example, we know that emotions, well, Candace Pert, who's the director of the National Institute of Health, National Institute of Mental Health, was a few years ago before, unfortunately, she passed, did a lot of work on this. And she found that within a half of a second of an emotional trigger, neurochemicals are tripped. And it takes only six seconds to saturate all the cells inside your body. There's actually an emotional intelligence organization called Six Seconds, and that's in recognition, recognition of that research. And it is a hundred times faster than you can even think about it. And this creates a physiological experience that is unique to each emotional state. And so we can learn to physically recognize these feelings. We have it in our vocabulary. You become hot-headed or get butterflies in your stomach or that sort of thing. And they've actually done a heat map uh, that shows various physiological heat distributions based on your experience, your emotional experience. So that's one way in which we can start getting in touch with um, our feelings. Um, And one of the reasons this is so important is because these feelings, the research is very clear, have a big impact on our perception, for example. how far something is, how steep a hill is, how loud a sound is, those are all things that uh, are affected by the emotional state that you're in. And of course, your judgment is also highly affected. So you you just referenced that people have physiological responses, which I suppose would lead to this next question I have. A person's emotions, do they have an impact on their physical well-being uh, and whether or not they're aware of their emotions? I mean, does that affect their physical well-being? Yes. Well, what we know is that, um, as your listeners are probably aware, in 2016, there was a Hazelton ABA study of 35,000 lawyers, and it showed very high distress, particularly compared to doctors and surgeons, which are the professions that lawyers are typically compared to, uh, there was very wide impairment 
it, it was called profound and far-reaching. And this was not a result of their work environment specifically or their physio physical um, abilities. It was, these are all emotional stress problems. So things like um, depression, substance abuse, even suicide. Um, the sad statistic is that um, white men in the United States have the highest suicide rate. White lawyers who are men have twice that rate. So we're talking about a substantial uh, physical, mental connection here that, that first of all affects our health. I mean, it's very clear heart health, immunity, it even shortens our telomeres, this kind of emotional stress, stress which will shorten our lives. Um, so yes, there's a, a major uh, impact and a, and a major impact just on our productivity and profitability um, that th this emotional stress, and you can imagine if you had a lawyer who had these kinds of emotional stress and you were the client, how um, confident you would feel in their ability to actually handle your matter. So speaking of being the lawyer and the client, we've all probably worked around a person or worked with a person who was not in control of their emotions. And, and you can sense it in the air, even if you weren't directly present for an emotional outburst, if, if you were in a different room or came in after, um, what causes that awareness that something has shifted in someone's emotional, I don't know, state? The onlooker's awareness? Of the, yeah. Um, yes. Well, that's probably good at some level because that means you're paying attention and uh, perception. Perception. There you go. <laughs> perception. So that's probably a, a good thing. You know that I would. I don't want to be too hard on these people because if you go back to the fact that they don't have good emotional perception themselves, very likely, strongly likely then they may have no idea how their outbursts are affecting people. They may have very little, uh, this is just on the perception level. We're going to, we're going to admit that they don't have great control, great management skills, but you can start out by saying they don't even see how other people are reacting or how they're hurting people or how they're upsetting people. I think that in the whole me too discrimination harassment field, that we may very well find that a lot of the people, and you know, the ABA has just recently revised its ethics to require lawyers to report people who, who are discriminating or harassing. But we may find that a lot of those people have just very poor uh, perception skills, not necessarily that they're out to get people, you know, and they have this malfeasance in their in intent. Um, so yes, if you can see that happening, you have some awareness that's important. And secondly, now under the ABA uh, ethics rules, you're supposed to report that. And 
When I think of someone who had, would have a perfect EI score, I picture the empath character Deanna Troy from the television series Star Trek Next Generation. She had the most serene demeanor and could perfectly read other persons another person's emotions almost telepathically. And I realize that that level of emotional intelligence is a superpower. But can the average person significantly improve their emotional intelligence score? Absolutely. And that is the good news of all of this, which is unlike IQ, unlike a number of other sort of mentally related uh, skills, emotional intelligence is something you can improve. You can improve your score, but probably more importantly, you can improve your skills. Mm-hmm. So that you actually, I mean, there is some a little bit of debate. There's one person in the emotional intelligence field who's an important one who thinks you don't actually change your score, but he doesn't question that you improve your skills. So that's what we're looking for. We're looking for improved skills. And thank goodness that, that can be done. Um, that's a very important point. So uh, talking about improving the skills, what are some specific things a person can do to improve their level of emotional intelligence? Like, for example, I know active listening is is a skill that can be improved upon. What other things can someone do to be better and just have a higher EQ? Yes. So active listening is certainly, Carla, one of the ones that um, is a good practice what you're doing is you're trying to make sure you are, are have gotten the correct message, not just the, the verbal message, but the emotional message. You're looking at those eyes as well as listening to the words. And in that same area, just being curious, gee, things, you don't, you're not looking so good, no, so happy today. You know, asking questions, anything, anything going on in your life, just being curious will help you develop some of that radar and, and maybe explain what's going on. The other thing I think is really important is um, Yale has a, um, a mood app uh, and you can, you can put an app on your phone. There's other apps as well um, where you can set a, 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 an alarm or you can just put into your, your app how you're feeling. And you can track that. And the reason that's important is it makes you think about how you're feeling, but also it gives you a vocabulary because one of the problems we have is that most people have like four emotional words, upset, happy, sad, mad. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it's hard to talk about or, or work in nuances if you don't have the vocabulary for it. So tracking and naming those emotions. The other thing Naming emotions, one of the things the mediators have found in the research done there is that when you go into these sort of hot-headed negotiations, by simply naming the emotions in play, you can reduce the amygdala activity of the participants. So it's, again, that sort of being heard, being seen. So if you can name emotions, that becomes an important part of expanding your emotional intelligence. Uh, one of the things for the, again, for the perception thing that I suggest to people who used to be flying around in airplanes um, is that they mute either the movies or the TV and see if they can follow the, the, the plot. Well, you know, what's going on? Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? What are the high moments of tensions? Because 
that and you can check in every once in a while see if you've got the right one but that sort of helps improve that perception ability um the other thing is i always encourage people to get a to have an ei buddy and that doesn't have to be somebody in the firm in fact maybe it's better not maybe it's a spouse maybe it's uh, somebody at another firm maybe it's you know some a friend that's in a very different profession but you can bounce things off of them. This is what so-and-so said and did, and this is what I did. What do you think? Or how do you think I should respond to so-and-so? It's just someone who you think has a different perspective on this, and you can maybe learn from. Um, the other thing I always think is important for all skills of emotional intelligence is mindfulness, uh, meditation. That's getting to be a little hip these days, and people are embracing it more. But it's literally like exercising your emotional intelligence skills. You wait. You have an emotion. You wait. That's one of the, the you wait for those six seconds to pass before you react because you want to be able to engage your cognitive um, part of your brain out in the real world. So in so in in meditation, you work on sitting with an emotion and not reacting immediately. You worked on letting things go by you as if in a river. That's a, a, a type of management or control so that you're not having these outbursts. Uh, so, so it's something, even if you do it two minutes a day, they've shown that it really makes a big difference. And the other thing I guess I would say is that lawyers, people generally, lawyers particularly, have a tendency towards negativity. So if they can look for more positivity, it helps them in their uh, sort of disaster thinking, you know, I'm terrible, I'll never be good at this, which is hard on them emotionally. Um, it's also like, for example, there was some research done at Harvard. And they found a, that the only thing more important than being perceived as competent for leaders was that they be perceived as warm. Now, that doesn't mean they're soft or easy or anything, but just that they're warm, that they're, they're open emotionally and interested in you emotionally. So, so using some positivity in your interactions and with yourself, I think is really important. That makes me wonder, because when we were talking about the pyramid, are there people that just really lack empathy? Like that's maybe not part of their makeup can you if you, if they're missing that how do you how do you increase yeah, do you your empathy work, yeah how do you work on yeah. empathy that's... Well, that's a really interesting we could spend an hour on that. <laughs> <laughs> that's what came to mind when you were talking about that was... uh, so there's a couple of things on that on empathy one um there is people always ask me about gender differences there is a oh. little gender differences in that pyramid men have a slight advantage in controlling emotions interestingly enough and unfortunately for them sorry guys most of that is um, just uh, uh, suppressing emotions so that's a type of control is not one that's good because they invariably pop up bigger than you know it's like whack-a-mole they're going to come back worse women have historically in a number of, ass of assessments but not always had a slight advantage in empathy um Empathy, certainly perceiving your own and others' emotions will improve your empathy. But we know from sociopaths and psychopaths, 
4% of our population, half of whom are in prison and the other half are CEOs and lawyers. <laughs> That's dun, dun, dun. <laughs> We know from psychopaths, yeah. and I gave several examples in my book of people who are lawyers who admit to being diagnosed as psychopaths. Um, so what we know from psychopaths is their problem is they don't have that empathic piece. That's their problem. Actually, they might be very good at perception. They usually are really good at perception, really good at understanding, and really good at managing. That's how they get up to the top. It's because they're able to essentially manipulate people around them, uh. those skills. So I want to make sure something's clear here, which is not a... Being emotional intelligent doesn't mean you're kind. That's not, you're not a nice, kind person. And a lot of lawyers sort of bristle when you talk about being emotional. It means you use emotion successfully. And by that standard, a lot of psychopaths can do that. But what they lack is empathy. Um, so they don't get it that this hurts other people. They don't get it that, uh, and that's that's what's extraordinarily dangerous and toxic in these environments is you have people who routinely hurt other people and have no no sense of it at all. I mean, again, they're not maleficent. They're just empty in that area. They have no sense of empathy. But what the research has found, this was Canadian research, which I also found fascinating, um, is that you can teach psychopaths to be more empathic. So, hey, lawyers, there's, there's a, a chance for all of us here. <laughs> you can teach psychopaths to be more empathic. And it is, it's sort of this over and over again, it's putting yourself in someone's shoes. You know, knowing how you feel and then saying, okay, if you were in that situation, how would you feel? And it's, it's really that they have a, a synapsis that's missing. You know, it's not that they've willed this in any way. They they are chemically made differently. But you can create that synapsis by going over and over again. So if you were in that person's shoes, how would you feel? That's interesting. And and I imagine also in in a law firm setting, uh, you mentioned earlier an EI uh, buddy. If if you are creating an environment where you can bounce ideas off, you know, other colleagues and, and actually discuss certain situations, even if you're kind of lacking that, you can maybe gauge how they would react. And that may mm -hmm. help you better understand um, how clients are feeling or how someone else is feeling. So there's, there's just so many factors that go into emotional intelligence that there's not one perfect EQ. It's, it's just so many little things that have to come together in order for someone to reach that level of emotional intelligence. So it's, it's just fascinating that even psychopaths can have high yeah. EQs, I guess. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm interested, you said there's mood apps. So what you're telling people to, with the mood app, it's kind of, it's a check-in with yourself. And it's fascinating because I think a lot of lawyers want to be like Spock. They're going to tell you that they don't have emotions. But what you're really doing is connecting the different parts of your brain to work together, which is going to affect your body. And so I've, we do a lot of mental health and wellness stuff. And so people bristle when we suggest meditation. And so one of the things I've seen in, um, and it's not just millennials, I think a lot of people do this. If you're bombarded all the time, you're in the, the car, you have the radio on, you're talking on the phone, you come home, you watch TV, you never take any, there's no quiet time at all. 
until you like you drop off to sleep. And if you've worn yourself out, you're going to go straight to sleep. So like if you can't meditate, one thing I suggest to people is try to drive in your car with nothing on. Don't talk on the phone and don't have the radio on. Um, but then so that when you start to, um, you know, you're going to analyze your feelings. So you're kicking both parts of those brain. And so is, is just being quiet with yourself, is that going to improve? Will that help improve some emotional intelligence? Absolutely. I'm, like you say, sort of feeling your body, feeling your mind. I, I recommend a lot of people are out walking these days. I mean, oh, walking yeah. meditation, I think is a lovely thing to do. We have good research that not on, not on pavement guys, but walking out in nature actually helps sort of recalibrate that, the, that feeling part. So the, being in nature is helpful. So a few minutes of quiet in nature is also a good way. Very nice. Without your earbuds in, just <laughs> nature sounds. Um, I want to end on an up note. So do you have any like specific examples or tell us what it looks like? Someone who's worked on this, um, they have a better awareness of their emotions, of their own and others. Um, what are, can you tell us whether it's a study or, you know, some, just your own awareness, how is this increasing specifically their performance and professional success? Because I think that that's the ultimate takeaway for a lot of our listeners. What's this going to do for me? Um, okay. So first it's going to make you much more uh, discriminating in your behavior uh, because you're going to, it's going to be motivated by circumstances around you. Let me give you an example. There is a woman, very, very famous in this world, um, lawyer to the stars in LA. She had a young child. Uh, she had a very busy husband who couldn't or didn't um, participate as much in managing the child. She, they had two homes. She traveled extensively. She felt inadequate everywhere. You know, she was um, felt inadequate at, at work, that she had to be gone quite a bit, uh, both for family and other obligations. And she felt inadequate with her daughter because she felt like she wasn't spending enough time with her. And she certainly felt like her marriage was being neglected. So um, we, we worked on a number of things, identifying immediately when she started having those feelings, you know, and looking to other people's emotional expressions, was her daughter feel needing attention? Was her husband feeling neglected? Was was her um, call were her co colleagues being judgmental? Not that she should feel bad about any of that, but that she should catch it early, um, and then developing a plan to try for her own sake, for her own um, peace, to address what she can address with those various parties. And I, I mean, I, we can't go into all of it, but mm -hmm. she had frank conversations with everybody and said that she wanted to be and do the most, what was most important to them and ha had to put some boundaries around some of the things that happened as she got more help at home. Um, so, and I, and I can say, because she was having these massive migraines where she would end up closing the door and, and laying on her sofa for hours at a time, I can say that that has definitely improved as she's much 
happier woman, but also a, a, a better lawyer because she's in a better place. That's excellent. This has been very fascinating, but it looks like we've reached the end of our program. Thank you, Rhonda Muir, for joining us today. Sure. I was very happy to talk to all of you. If our listeners have questions, how can they contact you or where can they find some of the resources we discussed today? Um, I can give you to post some of the resources, which would be helpful. Uh, I can also have you post my um, blog and my email, which is very easily rmuir at lawpeoplemanagement.com. Great. Carla will get that up for us. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. Join us next time for another episode of the Florida Bar podcast brought to you by Legal Fuel, the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. I'm Christine Bilbrey. And I'm Carla Eckhart. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalFuel.com. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to the Florida Bar's podcast via iTunes, Google Podcast, Spotify, and RSS. Find the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center Legal Fuel on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by the Florida Bar. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.